couple announcements, and, and we'll get started here. Uh, uh, first off, men's breakfast is next Saturday morning, 8.15. I know it's still going to feel like it's 7.15, but it's 8.15. Homemade cinnamon rolls and bacon. The bacon's not homemade. That'd be creepy. <laughs> like that movie Alive. We just cut it off the... Never mind. So, um, bacon, homemade cinnamon rolls, 8.15 next Saturday. You dudes, you should show up. Or not, and I'll just eat all the cinnamon rolls. I'll be, I'll be very happy. Like if my, never mind. I'm just getting a good one. I got, all, I got a lot of time. I, I just so scatterbrained because I'm tired today. Um, also, uh, next Saturday is Cinderella's Closet. It goes from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. And if you uh, know of a young lady who maybe needs a dress for prom or a formal uh, a thing of some sort and they don't have the money to really buy one, Cinderella's Closet where we take all these dresses, bring them in, and young ladies get to come and shop for a dress. So 11 to 2, uh, it'll be here in this room. So if you know somebody, uh, if, uh, I don't even know if these volunteers at this point because we don't really... We were told last week that we were having it here in this room. I'm like, oh, yay, that's when it is next week. So Saturday, uh, you know, talk to some girls. I believe you probably want to still want to volunteer and help them. I'm sure they got spaces for that as well if you want to do that. But let them know at the Welcome Center. We'll let them know. So 11 to 2, Green Girls from Girls Closet. Uh, and then we have a member meeting today. If you're a member of Element or really if you call Element home too and you want to come to this, you're welcome to come. Uh, but this is a meeting where we're going to talk about where we're at with the field and stuff. Uh, we've got some decisions we have to actually make this week. And so they're going to lay out some stuff for you monetarily wise of what things look like for us. And you're like, oh, great, a money meeting. I'm not coming. All right. So you can feel free to, we're just going to kind of talk about this and lay things out. And we want to do is give you guys a voice. Okay. So especially if you're a member, we encourage you guys to show up and, and maybe have a voice in this or just be like, I'm cool with whatever, you know, whatever. But we want to be able to share these things with you before we go forward with what we're doing. Make sense? Yeah. All right. Uh, welcome to Element. Uh, I'm glad you got out of bed. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room. Inside these sermon notes, you will get uh, the, some more stuff about what we talk about. Um, also, uh, some questions that go along with the journey we're kind of going through with these churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, and then on the back, there's some announcements. You have a smartphone. You can download an app. It's called Version. Click on Live and Version. It'll bring us up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you guys stand with me for the reading of God's Word. See Ephesians chapter 6, verse 13. It says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us as a people what it means to persevere and have endurance and to stand firm, that we would understand the goodness and the graciousness of the gospel, the, the freedom of salvation, the joy to live in it, but also what it means to live under endurance, uh, that you would teach us to be a people who honor you by how we live our lives. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we're in a series of messages that we're leading up to Easter and Resurrection. Uh, this is week six of our seven-week look through the churches in the book of Revelation. That's Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. You can open to Revelation chapter 3 if you want to. Uh, we're going to finish looking at these seven churches next week, and then we're going to hit what's called the Paschal Triduum, which is the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Jesus' death, then ultimate resurrection. Uh, this is all an effort to examine our lives, allow God's Holy Spirit to take His bright light, to shine it deep into the recesses of our hearts and our souls so we can dig out all the things that we're trying to hide because sometimes we can get so off course. 
And we're trying to get to a place where he refocuses and resets us. We are calling this our Lent-like journey, a time of sober reflection that builds up into the point of the joy and the celebration of resurrection. Yay! I'll let you off with that today because I know you're tired. Okay. Now, uh, people have a lot of criticism at the church. Uh, I think some of it's rightly leveled and some of it not so much. Uh, When we look at the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, I think we get a much better picture of what Jesus calls us all to. Now, sometimes I get frustrated because some people will say a lot of things about the church, especially the words they use and the generalizations of it. Like in America today, there are approximately 300,000 plus churches. And people will say things like, oh, the church has really gone astray. And I think really all 300,000 of them? Isn't that really a generalization? But then sometimes people say, oh, the church is really on it and it's really growing. And then I think, really? All 300,000 of them? I, I really don't think so. You can't make generalizations about churches just like you cannot make generalizations about people and their lives. You've got to look at each church individually and what's going on. And that's what Jesus does in these letters. I think he still does it with us today, individually and corporately, because we are all his church. I think Jesus' spirit here focuses to help us return to his mission, to grow into who he calls us to be. Because Jesus knows all of our struggles individually and corporately. Uh, He knows our needs. Uh, He knows our staff's frustration. Here, sometimes we're trying to find a place to put everybody and all the kids and always running out of room. He knows your frustration, how I, I always make fun of your country music. He gets it. You know, I think he sympathizes. I think he sees the gospel preached, and I think he enjoys that. But I also think that he sees our failures, and he would offer some of us rebuke as well, all in an effort to grow us into who we're called to be. Now, today you get to a church. This church is in the city of Philadelphia, not USA. Don't think Fresh Prince, East Philadelphia, born and raised, right? Don't, don't think that. Right? And, and this is in the Middle East. And it's amazing because here to this church, Jesus only offers positive encouragement. It's the, like, the only church that Jesus does to only positive encouragement. Uh, in Revelation chapter 3, like I said, if you're not there, turn there. And then you're probably wondering how I'm going to give you a Lent-type message out of all of this. But don't worry, I'm a professional. I can make you feel bad out of any section of Scripture. <laughs> Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And it says... And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, write. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia was founded in 189 B.C. by King Eumenes II. Uh, he was the king over another city that we looked at in this series called Pergamum. Uh, he named the city of Philadelphia the city of brotherly love for the love that he had for his own brother. His brother's name was Adelus II. Apparently their father didn't like them and wanted them to get beat up on the playground. They gave him all kinds of bad, crazy names. Uh, Philadelphia comes from Phidos, which means loving, Adelphos, which means brother, Brotherly love. It actually literally means from the same womb. Uh, Eumenes, when he died, he wanted his brother to take over the kingdom. And so what he does, what, what he does is he has his brother marry his wife after his death, which is just always awkward, right? Imagine like your brother died and you're like, hey, marry my wife. Be like, no. Kind of weird, but that happens. Um, the area around Philadelphia was significant agriculturally, especially for the production of wine. See, just like Santa Maria. See, you're all connected right there. The soil was great for growing grapes, and because of the wine production, it was a center of Dionysus worship. Uh, Dionysus is the god of wine and fertility. Uh, he is also known as Bacchus, which is where we get our word debauchery from. Uh, this is a picture of his temple in Pergamum because the temple in Philadelphia was destroyed. There you go. Okay, uh, because the temple in Philadelphia is actually destroyed. And so, you know, being the god of, like, booze, 
and, and like fertility, you know, he's also the worship through sexual immorality. So we would say he's like the god of the spearmint rhino. Yeah, that's, that's, that's who he is. Because uh, you get too much wine or booze in somebody, what happens? The clothes somehow just start coming off. So you got to figure that out. Uh, there are also flocks that grazed in this area. They supplied uh, wool and hides for textiles and leather production. Uh, Philadelphia is uh, situated in a way it's very easily defended, but it's also very earthquake prone. And so the city is destroyed multiple times because of earthquakes. And in 17 AD, Philadelphia is essentially leveled because of an earthquake. It's rebuilt by the Emperor Tiberius. So when this letter is written to this church, it's essentially a brand new city. It's all been rebuilt. You ever buy a new car? You're like, oh, I love that smell. Yeah, remember moving to a brand new house? Like, hmm, new house smell. It's like got the new city smell. You're like, oh, I love the new city smell. Anyway, that's, that, that's kind of there. Um, it was again destroyed by subsequent earthquakes. But like all other Roman cities, uh, the emperors were worshipped in these cities. Uh, there's not much left today from that early city. It's been built over again. Uh, the modern city of Al-Shahir actually covers it. Al-Shahir means city of Allah or city of God. But there are still a handful of believers in this city. So Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David who opens and no one can shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, the first thing Jesus starts off talking about is this key. A lot of the persecution this church faced and is going to face is from the Jewish synagogues. Uh, Jesus says, you know, he eventually actually calls these uh, Jewish synagogues synagogues of Satan. Uh, Satan can translate as accuser or adversary. And what these, they're being very adversarial to these Christians. It's a very strong accusation for these Jews who consider them the true followers of God. And Christians were saying, I'm following Jesus because it's the fulfillment of Judaism. And so Jesus calls himself the one who holds the key of David means he is the source and the master of the Jewish people. You know, Jesus says that this synagogue has departed from God. It's no longer following God. It's following the way of the adversary, the way of Satan. They're persecuting the true followers of God, the believers in Jesus. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, again, the accuser or your adversaries, who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, what was this synagogue of Jews doing? Well, as I said, emperor worship is big in every one of these cities in Asia Minor. And the interesting thing about Jews, though, is they were exempt from emperor worship. They did not have to worship the emperor. And so what they were doing is, at, there's a, a historical evidence, they were going to the proconsuls and the governors and saying, those people who follow this Jesus, they're not really Jews. And so they were then brought before these, you know, tribunals and said, hey, you know, worship the emperor. And they're like, no, we're Jews. We don't have to. No, you're not Jews. The Jews say you're not Jews. That's what they're doing. That's how they're coming against them. And what Jesus says is the, these people of Israel one day humble themselves and admit that Jesus actually loves these Gentile believers as well, that you're chosen people of God, Israel and Gentile both. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Interesting, in the next century, there's an early church father. His name is Ignatius. He travels through this area on his way to Rome before he's martyred. Obviously, before he's martyred, I don't know why I even said that, because if he was dead, he wouldn't write it. But anyway, uh, so he stops by, and he actually writes a letter back to this church after, after passing through, commending them for their unity, 
So apparently they actually took what was in this letter and what Jesus said and took it to heart and lived it for some time. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and I'll explain what that means. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a church who overcomes and what they're doing through persistence. Uh, perseverance. Every church here, Jesus tells two things. He says, listen to me and persevere. Listen and persevere. Perseverance is everything in a Christian life. Perseverance is a gift that we offer. If you're born, you're born with your IQ, a certain level of talent. You can work on it, but you really just got a certain level of talent. But perseverance and endurance, this is a gift that we can actually offer. We are saved by grace. It is solely a gift of God but we can offer back perseverance and endurance. I think anybody can act like they follow Jesus for 10 minutes, but how hard is it to live a life under suffering or persecution when people are looking at you and saying, why are you a Christian? What? And to actually endure through those things. Now, by the time the emperor Trajan comes into power in 98 AD, it is illegal in the Roman Empire to be a Christian. And so people would say, oh, that's a Christian, and you'd be brought before the you know, imperial council or the governor or something like that, and they would ask you, are you a Christian? If you said yes, they would say, well, you need to curse Christ and worship the emperor or one of these other gods. If they did, they'd be spared, but if they would not, they were tortured and then executed. Part of the book, part of the reason the book of Revelation is written was to prepare the Christians for that situation. And the simple fact of history is the things that are in this book actually did the job. It did prepare them to live on mission in the midst of persecution. Some churches, Jesus has to call back. He rebukes them to come back to the mission. In the church here in Philadelphia, he simply encourages them to continue to go forward. Live the mission. Live the mission. Every person who calls himself a believer is on mission. What's the mission? Number one, glorify God. Second thing, disciple each other. Be a disciple who makes disciples. How do you do that? You understand the gospel. You live the gospel out in your life. The gospel is we were lost. Jesus came to rescue us, to redeem us, to raise us from the grave, to bring us home, to call us into his family, to make us his children. And when we begin to live that way and center on that, our relationships, our conversations, what we do is centered around that. By centering around that, it changes how we interact with everything else around us. Now, what you have to understand is this actually changed the entire early church. They began to live on mission. You've got historical records of this. Uh, one account is this dialogue between six Christian men in the city of Carthage. They've been brought up on trial for being Christians. They're brought before the pro-council. His name was Saturn in us. Saturn in us. That's Saturn. That's his name. Like, again, his dad didn't like him either. You know, Saturninus says to them, Swear now by the Lord our emperor. The spokesman for the men says, We have committed no wrong. We have committed no theft. We buy, when we buy something, we pay the tax on it. We do all this because we know our Lord, who no one sees with these eyes, who is the king of kings and emperor of all nations. Now, Saturn in us, <laughs> Saturn in us says, You have 30 days to rethink that. I would have said, sweet, 30 days, thanks, right? These guys said, no, we're Christians, we're not going to rethink this. Saturninus says, well, since you have obstinately persisted, it's determined that you'll be put to the sword. And then they said, we'll take the 30 days. No, they, they said, thanks be to God. That's the response, thanks be to God. When they're called out for what they believe, and they knew what they said would lead to torture and death, what they did is they essentially quote the book of Revelation. 
That's what they do. They said, we do all this because we know our Lord who no one sees with these eyes, who is king of kings and emperor of all nations. That's a way of saying Lord of lords. That's a description you get of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Jesus gives his people a mission. And when they took these truths into their lives and they begin to live these truths, he begins to make them into a people of endurance. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Jesus commends this particular church and says they have kept my word of endurance. Endurance is the word hopomini. Hopomini. Moni means to stand or stay. Hopomini means to hyperstand or hyperstay. Okay, like if you make something that's like light, and you're like, I need to make this really light. I'm going to make it hyper light. It's really light. I got, a, I got wakeboards. They're called hyper light. And they're, they're actually, whatever, okay. In Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 12, it says that, 2, 12, 2, it says, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Uh, that, that is the word of homini. Jesus, homini, the cross. He hyperstood the pain and suffering of the cross. He didn't just stand. He hyperstood in the midst of it. So look at the things that we worry about, things that kind of overwhelm us. How do we deal with it? Do we crumble or do we hyperstand in the strength that Jesus provides us as a people? The Romans, they were amazed that Christian after Christian after Christian, you get it before governor after governor after governor and say we will not bow the knee because Jesus is king of kings and he is lord of lords. You'll be put to death. And what do they say? Well, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. I'd be going, don't I get 30 days? No. Thanks be to God. The Romans looked at that and they couldn't believe what they saw in these believers because they weren't freaking out. They saw calmness, they saw faith, and really they also saw a lack of bitterness in all these believers. And that's the practicalness of the gospel. Jesus could hyperstand in the face of the cross. The people who came to understand this hyperstood persecution. So can we. I think it is amazing that of all the disciples, Jesus takes the most boneheaded, fanatic, manic-depressive guy named Peter, and he says in Matthew 16, 18, I'm going to call you Peter, which means rock. This is like taking the biggest guy in the room and calling him, you know, tiny. I mean, Peter, really? He can't keep his mouth shut? He makes promises he can't keep? Chops the guy's ear off? Denies Jesus? But what does he end up doing when he understands who Jesus is? After the resurrection, he hyperstands execution. He goes to the cross himself. I think anybody who knows the truths of the gospel and lives that in their lives, people like, hyperstand, endure, and be durable. It's where is our focus? Where is our focus? Our focus is meant to be on Jesus. So how are you doing? I mean, I don't know about you, but I really can't hyperstand staying away from cookies for more than a couple days. You know, it's like, I got to have the cookies. I can't do it. But what does it mean to be a people of durability? I want to be a person of durability. I mean, whatever you're facing this week, it's probably not the same things that the people in Philadelphia faced. You're probably not having your toes cut off or your head cut off or being rolled in pitch and lit up like a torch. But what does it mean to be people of endurance, to live that way? And how do we live that way? Tim Keller, he breaks this down into what he calls the door, the key, and the pillar, which are all in here. So I am going to kind of run those through with you, the door, the key, and the pillar. Number one, the door. Jesus says, Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. If you go down to verse 10, he uses this word because. So it's this long phrase that kind of connects these things together. I have placed before you an open door because you have kept my word about patient endurance. The first truth that we have to understand is that Christian sufferings are never meaningless. Whatever you go through, it is never meaningless. Timothy Keller says a Christian sees all suffering, all trials, and all pain as purposeful. 
Now, in, in the New Testament, whenever you see this, the, this open door I'm setting before you, an open door, here's an open door, what it means is it's always an opportunity to talk about the gospel. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians. What Jesus says to these people at this church, he says, you have little strength. He says, I know your deeds and that you have little strength. In Greek, that means you're puny. You're puny, you're little, you don't have a lot of talent or numbers. And it looks kind of harsh, but as you read the rest of the book of Revelation, it starts to make sense. It's not harsh. Jesus connects this statement with the Jews. And he's not picking on Jews because he's already picked on Christians as well. What Jesus is saying here is it's one thing to culturally be a Christian, to call, just to call yourself one, it's another to actually be one. It's one thing to culturally be a Jew. I have friends who are Jewish, and, they, and they're not religious at all. Right? They don't even really believe in God, but they call themselves Jews. It's one thing to do that, but also another one to truly be a Jew. Jesus is laying down a principle. A synagogue of Jews was persecuting this church. And he says, you'll be amazed because it will not be long before they, as hard as they seem to be, as hostile as they seem to be, will begin to realize that I love you because you keep living on mission. You keep speaking about the gospel. You're living through patient endurance. He says, I will bring you to the time. I will bring you to the situation. Well, they will come and acknowledge that I have loved you. And, and Americans would think, yeah, we'll win. I've told them about Jesus and they didn't believe me, but I will know one day when they're sent to hell. This is not what this is about. That is not what this is about. This isn't about winning. This is about the ability to speak about the gospel of Jesus Christ, to speak the truth into people's lives. We, I mean, it, it's not like, yay, burn, sucker. I was right. That, that is never to be a Christian's attitude, ever. It's not about winning. It's about the proclamation of the gospel that there are open doors. Jesus says, you're puny. There aren't very many of you. You're not very talented element, you know. But people you never thought in a million years will listen to you. They'll listen to you. How is that going to happen? How does that happen? Because you patiently endure. Because you understand the mission and who Jesus is. And you continue to live on that mission. I mean, the irony is is that Jesus says how you handle those closed doors are going to open other doors. He says, the reason I'm going to open that door, the reason you're going to overcome is because of the way in which you handled those closed doors that everyone just said were closed. Suffering is never for nothing. Suffering is never for nothing. I mean, my wife works at the hospital, sees some crazy stuff. Sometimes there's accidents. Doctors do like these heroic measures to save somebody. And sometimes people make it through the backside and then they live the rest of their lives in pain. And some people say, well, if they were animals, we'd put them out of their suffering. And that's actually true. Why? Because suffering has no meaning for an animal. It has no meaning for them. But human life is of infinitely higher existence than animal existence. Timothy Keller says this. If you go into the great art galleries of this world, if you listen to the great music of this world, you begin to realize that suffering has enriched people's lives. The suffering in the life of an artist makes them richer, wiser, deeper, and more profound. Suffering can, doesn't mean it always does, but it can make you much more human. Who God actually made you to be. Suffering can be extremely meaningful. It, it doesn't make everyone better, obviously. We all know this. Some people just make it into louder whiners. We, we know that, right? But the truth is that suffering will either make you much better or much worse, but it never, ever leaves you the same. So how do we make sure that suffering has a good purpose? Well, the answer is where Jesus goes. He talks about the door, and he talks about the key. 
Okay, he talks about this key. A Christian grow under suffering because we suffer under authority. Jesus says, I have the keys of David, and I open, no one can shut, and I shut, and no one can open. That's kind of the crux of what he gets to with this church right there. Troubles do not automatically make us more compassionate or more humble or more wise. It will only move us towards greater purpose, these open doors, when we suffer under authority. It means we acknowledge that Jesus has the key. You're like, I don't even know what that means. I'll explain it to you. Jesus has the keys. He's got the keys to my car. He's driving around. What, what does that mean? No. Okay. In these days, when you had a home, you couldn't lock the whole house down. It would drive my wife nuts because she locks everything all the time. Everything's got to be locked. Half the time I leave my keys in. I was at Home Depot yesterday. I'm like, where did I put my keys? And I walk out. They're in the car in the ignition. Of course they are. That's where I leave them all the time. Duh, right? My wife locks it. Half the time she'll take off and go somewhere, locks all the doors. I don't have keys with me. I can't get in the house. I am locked out of my own house. I'm like, come on, woman. Got a big dog. Leave it in the backyard. It'll be okay. She locks. Now, houses and doors at this time they didn't have windows or doors like, like, like we have, right? at least not like we do, right? In many cases, in, in larger cities, people would actually have right of ways of passageway right through the middle of your house. Be like, awkward. I got a poo. Like, hello. You know, it's j- j- just weird. So if you had like a, a lord of a city or someone who was rich or someone like that, they would give the management of their houses to a steward and they would give that person the keys because the keys would open everything in the house. That was important. And so if you wanted to keep something from going missing, everything had to be locked up. It's like we've got to lock stuff up around here because you guys walk off with stuff all the time. All the time, people. So the kitchen was locked, the linens are locked, the cabinets are locked. Wherever the keys was completely in charge. They managed everything, they ran everything. So when Jesus says, I have the keys of David, what he means is, I have absolute power and authority over your life. And Americans, we don't like this. We hate this. We, we say, we are in charge of our lives, not this Jesus guy, I'm in charge. You are not in charge of your life. You are not in charge of life. I open when no one can shut. I shut and no one can open. You did not choose your gender. You did not choose your chromosomes. You did not choose your intelligence level, obviously, right? You did not choose your racial background. You did not choose the economic climate you were born into. You did not choose your family life. You did not choose your talent. All these things were open for you. I mean, do you realize how little you are in charge of your life? We're just like, oh, I'm in charge. Even if you're a success, thousands of things that could have gone wrong didn't. Social science research even shows this today, that, that we are a people who when something goes right, we blame ourselves. Oh, look how I did this. I'm amazing. Look, this thing happened. When something goes wrong, we blame the world around us. We blame God. We blame everything else except ourselves. The Bible says this about us, that we're this kind of people. Anything you have, it's because God has opened it for you. Tim Keller says this, unless you are continually grateful for everything you experience, you're a cosmic plagiarist, refusing to acknowledge what you've gotten and who you've gotten it from. Without trouble and closed doors, we will never know who we really are. If we are a people who haven't suffered, we're not going to know who we really are. Like today, I understand a lot of parents try to keep their kids from ever going through anything difficult. They try and lay out their lives so there's only comfort. But that sometimes doesn't help kids. Uh, my gospel community leader, Donald, about a year ago, uh, they, they have these chickens. And one of his daughters loves a chicken called Sunshine. And Sunshine died overnight, right? And so he, sends, he, goes, he goes, how do I talk about this? What do I do? I mean, don't you just want to say, Sunshine 
ran away because, like, oh, Sunshine hates you so much, she ran away. Right? You don't want to say something like that. So what do I do? And I go, this is a perfect opportunity to start speaking the gospel into her life. And I said, you explain what death is. And you say, we hate death. Death is terrible. It is the worst thing. And it is, it is the enemy of us. This world is the way it is, and death is in it, because death is an enemy, and sin has brought this about, and yet Jesus has come to pay for our sins. Jesus will hold your soul your entire life because he loves you. I mean, we get to start speaking the gospel because we allow, we speak truths into people's lives. And when you only give kids comfort, they don't know they're only getting comfort. They don't understand that. Kids become shallow. They, they become unable to handle the pain in real life. You know, grandma went on vacation. That's a really long vacation. Grandma must have a lot of money, right? Because she's been gone a really long time. Kids start to become superficial, but they don't even know that they're superficial because they just don't know anything different. The fact of the matter is, without suffering, we really don't come into the fullness of what it means to be human. I mean, we don't know how we're doing physically if we just lie around in a bed all, bed all day saying, man, I got great stamina, I can lay here all day. We don't, we don't know. Like, you don't know how physically strong you are if you don't go try and pick something up and you're like, oh, woo! I got to pull some. I got to go work out. <laughs> I'm, I'm weak, right? Until you try and do something. Until we experience hardship, we have no idea how patient or impatient we are. We don't know how selfish or unselfish we are. We don't know how courageous or how cowardly we are unless we go through some kind of trouble. See, the way we are when we get terrible news, you know, the way we face frustration and anger and disappointment, that's the way we really are. That's who we are in the core of our being. And without trouble and closed doors, we really never know what lasts. Until the things that we have built our lives upon are jeopardized, we don't realize how fragile our lives really are. And people will say things like this. They say, why does God let bad things happen? And it's a valid question. But you know what I think the reason, the answer to that is? Mercy. I think it's mercy. Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? That's the point. If there's anything in our lives that is not Jesus that we're holding to as our light and our salvation, our lives will crumble. You know, if, if, if our career, you know, is our light and our salvation, and you don't get that pay raise, or you don't get that promotion, your life's going to crumble. If, if it's your marriage, or your looks, or your images, your salvation, you're going to be upset by small comments, or God forbid you gain a pound, or, or you have to prolong working through some kind of issue. It is mercy for God to show us where our lives are built on sand instead of the rock, going back to the Sermon on the Mount. See, troubles can make us more compassionate. Suffering can make us more understanding. They can make us more into the people that Jesus calls us to be so we can live on mission. And this, the heart of it all is that Jesus' power over us is a rightful and a true power. He built us. He created us. He's like a gardener that has the rights over its flowers or a painter who has the, the rights over its painting because only he knows what the painting was meant to be. Jesus is our author, and it's why he has authority over us, not the experts. I mean, we have experts in our world today, and they're always going back and reversing themselves. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Eggs are good. Eggs are bad. Meat's good. Meat's bad. No, it's good. Bread's bad. Don't eat gluten. Oh, gluten doesn't really matter. Oh, gluten does. Don't eat gluten. You know, no fruit. You know, fruit's really good. Well, don't eat too much fruit, too much sugar. Well, eat a lot of fruit. Well, don't eat a lot of fruit. Drink lots of water. Lots of water's going to kill you. What do you do? So many people claim to have expertise and they're always reversing themselves. None of those people have authority over you. Jesus is your artist. He's the one that created you. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's who he is. And when we understand the gospel, we understand more and more what it means that Jesus holds these 
keys. Every religion will tell you their God holds the keys. Oh, my God holds the keys. You know, Christianity is the only faith that teaches that our God became a human being to save his lost and broken people. I mean, this is why Christianity's approach to suffering is completely different than anybody else. Because we are the ones who have a God who has the keys and yet allowed himself to be locked out for us. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. And what it teaches you is that a Christian gets to suffer with hope. Jesus is the only one who holds the keys and still knows what it's like to suffer with and for us because he loves us. And this goes to the pillar, the third thing. And it says, I will make you enter a pillar. It's like, I don't even know what that means. I don't want to be a pillar. I remember Lot's wife became a pillar of salt. I don't want a horse looking at me. What does that even mean, right? Well, a pillar is something rock solid. So in this area, they had all these earthquakes. Things kept falling to pieces. The only thing that really stood through all these earthquakes were these pillars in these temples because they were built so solid. And Jesus says, when you trust me, when you understand I am the key to all this, when I have authority, you will stand like this pillar. Now, there's a lot of accounts of of prisoners in World War II, at the end of World War II. Um, You seen the movie Unbroken or read the book? I'll tell you. Too bad it stopped right in the middle of the book, right? It needed to keep going because really at the end of the book, you know, uh, everything in his life, he, he can't handle it. And Jesus saves him and redeems him. It's really a beautiful story about how Jesus can redeem and, and save somebody. Uh, Timothy Keller actually quotes uh, some, this guy in World War II in the Pacific Rim when they found out the Japanese had surrendered. It's, it's this. It was funny. The guy says this. For the next two weeks, we were still in the prisoner camp. We were still being beaten. We are still under confinement. Our lives were still in danger, but we knew we were going to be released. Up until that time, we had refused to let ourselves either laugh or cry. It was too painful to laugh or cry, but once hope came in, in spite of the suffering, we started to laugh and cry. Why? Because hope was there. They knew there was an end. I mean, when you follow Jesus and understand his authority, you know, and to be this pillar, it means sometimes you don't know why you're suffering. You don't know the meaning behind it. But we know that it all can have a point. And we know that it comes to an end because we know that Jesus took it all into himself. And as a result, there will be an end to everything we experience now, which means we get to people, be a people who can laugh and we can cry And we get to be a people of endurance, a people who can be a pillar, a people who live on mission, centered around the gospel with endurance. So this brings me to my Lent questions for this week. And these are all in the sermon notes. If you guys don't have them, you get them on your phone, by the way, too. Anyway, so these are the questions. Uh, Are you standing or are you hyperstanding? Or are you hyperstanding? How do you experience pain and suffering? Are you, how obedient are you to Jesus in the middle of your troubles? And I don't mean that you can't cry out and can't be like, God, what in the world's going on? Ah. Two-thirds of the book of Psalms is that, called Psalms of the Lament. God, why? You can do that, but, but how obedient are you in the midst of that? How do you continue to live on mission? Like, um, you know, sometimes if, if my wife and I get in an argument, yeah, we actually do, right? You know, and and I, I have a hard time living on mission sometimes when when. On when that's not right in my life. It's like, so even if that, how do I continue to live on mission even where I've got maybe an issue there or something? You know, uh, what, what things is Jesus uh, beginning to crumble in your life because you worship it more than you worship him? You know, what, what is that? And how are you fighting that? And how in the midst of that crumbling, you know, can you embrace Jesus in the midst of all of that? And those, those are hard questions. Because it's very hard in the midst of our suffering to start to actually begin to deal with some of this stuff. 
The interesting thing about this church, Jesus commended it for their endurance. He said, endure, and they did. He said, in the midst of that enduring, love each other, and they did. I think the church today needs to come back to a place just like this, of obedience and patient trust in the person of Christ. And I know it sounds strange to say, but if you look at how we live our lives mostly as Christians, it's usually a ritual and tradition, right? We, we go to church because we're supposed to. We read our Bibles because we're supposed to. We pray every once in a while because we're supposed to because that's what tradition dictates. But we are to be a people who understand Jesus' authority and the open door and also that he is the one who has suffered with and for us. And so we can be a pillar and so we can say we denied ourselves, we took up the cross of Christ, and we followed him because that's endurance. That's endurance. It comes out of what he has already done for us. But that's endurance. You know, what things in our lives does he crumble because he wants to be the most important thing in our lives? How do we embrace that? How do we, how do we live with people so eventually at some point we get to live and, and walk through these open doors that he has set before us? We get to, to speak about the truth and the grace of the gospel because of what he has done. Again, he's calling all these churches back to remember their mission. This church here, he's encouraging them, continue to live on mission. It's not your endurance or your perseverance that saves you, but we as a people can actually offer that back to him and live in perseverance and endurance. I mean, this is one of the reasons we talk about communion every week. Well, you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. But it reminds us that we get to lay all of our burdens and all of our suffering, all this down at his feet. And it doesn't mean that we don't still walk out with it, you know, a little bit of the, the suffering and this pain. But what it means is that he, we understand he will walk through it with us, that we get to be a people of endurance because he endured for us. It all comes back to how and who we see him to be. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys, like I said, to take communion to be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer... I mean, maybe, maybe you're going through something really hard right now. I mean, maybe you've got some deep and intense suffering that, that you're working through. They would love to pray with you about that. Because how we handle that suffering is going to eventually open more and more doors for how we get to talk about the one who has suffered with and for us. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is then simply part of our worship, so you have the opportunity. You know, we don't pass a plate in response to what he's done. Uh, there's some food and stuff in the back. I noticed that Donna uh, made, some, you know who Donna is, most of you, but Donna made the, these homemade cookies, and I didn't even steal any. Okay? So some back, you can grab something to eat. But again, we do that. So you guys grab something to eat and maybe meet somebody else so you don't just run out the door. That you can maybe meet a couple other people. And in that, start to maybe talk about some of these questions. Walk through some of these things. Talk about, you know, what it means to be a people of endurance, to be a people who trust him in the midst of our trials. You know, maybe it's a time to talk about your own suffering and where you're at. And be really honest. Is your suffering, you know, drawing you closer to him, being a more compassionate person, or is it drawing you away from him? What, what is it doing? I mean, he is the one that is meant to be the center of our lives. And when we live with him as the center, everything changes. Everything changes. Because he is good to us. Uh, let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us to be a people of patient endurance and to understand what that means, that it's not our effort that saves us, but it is your grace that essentially saves us. But our endurance and our perseverance 
It's something that we can offer back, that, that how we go through our trials, now we go through our pain. It's going to show our friends, our family, and the rest of the world who you really are to us. Have we built our lives on ourselves or we built our lives upon you? Teach us and show us how to be a people who have built our lives upon you. I ask that we would find our satisfaction and our hope in who you are. That all the ways that that we keep trying to run our lives ourselves would be exposed to us and it would crumble in light of who you are. That we would be thirsty for the things of you, that we would be hungry for the things of you. That you would become center of everything that we do. We thank you for never giving up on us. Even where it seems sometimes that we give up on you, you never give up on us. Teach us to live the same faithfulness that you have first given to us. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.